Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. I'm Artemis and in today's episode we're heading to Victorian Britain where leaps in technology were making the world seem smaller and faster than ever before. In the period we're travelling to today, for the first time in history it was possible to call someone miles away from you using a telephone. You could sail across the Atlantic Ocean in a week. You could travel all over the country via a vast network of railway lines at previously unimaginable speeds. But this is also a world where pretty much the fastest mode of individual transport was still a horse, where the electric light bulb was barely 10 years old, and where the concept of motion pictures was still a beautiful idea waiting to be made a reality. It was a world which our guest today, Paul Fisher, has captured brilliantly in his new book, The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures, in which he tells the story of Louis Le Prince, a man who made the world's first ever film before disappearing and never being heard from again. Paul Fisher is an author and film producer based in the United Kingdom. His first book, a Kim Jong-il production, was nominated for the Crime Writers Association's Non-Fiction Book Award, as well as chosen as one of the best books of 2015 by NPR and the Library Journal. Paul has also written for the New York Times, the LA Times and the Independent, amongst others. And in addition to writing, he works as a film producer and is an alumni of the Guiding Lights Mentorship Programme. I spoke to Paul about his wonderful new book just last week. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. It's such a delight to be able to talk to you about this wonderful book. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So in today's episode, we're going to be taking a kind of whistle-stop tour through England um, as it kind of transforms into the modern country that it is today. But before we get into those scenes, I wanted to talk a bit about your new book, The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures. What a story. How did you first hear about it? I first heard about Louis Le Prince, who's the man the book is about, in another book, actually, in a novel. There's a, a conspiracy theory thriller novel by a writer called Theodore Rorschach. The book's called Flickr, and it essentially, it's kind of like the Da Vinci Code for movies, is the best way I can pitch it. But he mixes in kind of real people and real facts with the conspiracy, and he mentions in the book this guy called Louis Le Prince, who disappeared after making the first motion pictures. And I remember reading that novel and thinking, this sounds like one of the, is this one of the real people, or is this one of the made-up people? And I looked him up, because I was curious, and immediately fell into that rabbit hole. Because the fascinating thing with Louis Le Prince is he made a movie that exists still in seven years before the Lumiere brothers, who, you know, I grew up in France and they were kind of considered the inventors of cinema, no question. And here was a guy who had made a film years before them and the film existed and the, his Cameron projectors still exist. And he had the patents and his patents were approved. And it was it kind of seemed like an open and shut case that this man invented motion pictures and yet I'd never heard of him and no one knew of him and he'd kind of been erased by history which I found fascinating you know the way these things became it became an itch I had to scratch yeah and it's such a kind of the subject itself 
the birth of motion picture is so gripping. And then on top of that, it's an amazing murder mystery um, combined. It is, because one of the reasons we don't remember Le Prince is before he was able to make the invention public, he got on a train and disappeared and was never seen again. And it's one of those Victorian unsolved mysteries that are brilliant to dig into and are super compelling there's an added poetry to it, I suppose, in the sense that in the, the, the movies was a technology intended to make it so things couldn't get lost anymore, intended to be kind of provide some certainty and extending life and memory and remembering people. And, and here they were being invented by a guy who vanished and whose life ended in kind of the opposite scenario. So it's a cool way to write cultural history and, and film history kind of wrapped in I guess, you know, true crimes may be a bit rich, but in a kind of narrative that would be more compelling than just like, let me tell you about perforations and technology, <laughs> which is really cool because it's always great to have a hook and, and, and a mystery driving things forward. Yeah, definitely. It's not the first time you've written a book which has a crime at the centre of it because um, your last book, a Kim Jong-il production, um, which is about the North Korean leader kidnapping a famous actress and director and getting them to um, make films for him. And I kind of was wondering, like, what was the difference between writing that book, um, which is a fairly kind of modern crime, and then writing a book about a crime which is 130 years old? I mean, the, the, the weird thing is, in unexpected ways, the Le Prince book almost felt more current or accessible in the sense that kind of reliable sources of what happened in North Korea in the 70s or 80s are finite and limited and hard to believe or, or verify. And so that almost felt like a more remote world to move into. And, you know, the Kim Jong-il book, I obviously I had Che Yun-hee, the actress, was still alive when I started writing the book, at least. Um, and I think was still alive when it came out. So I had someone to speak to. But, you know, I traveled to North Korea for that book and it felt as as distant as traveling to Leeds, where Le Prince worked, does today and trying to understand what it was like 140 years ago. As far as the mystery aspects, the Le Prince thing is you go into it convinced and hopeful you're going to find some kind of smoking gun. of Like, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to solve it. There's going to be a book in an archive somewhere that I'll open and a piece of paper will fall out and it'll be a confession and then all the stuff you see in movies. And then you quickly realize that you aren't going to find that and you're going to solve it some other way because it is 140 years old. Whereas the North Korean thing, that aspect was simpler. People were still alive. You can Google map locations. There's video. It was, it was because with the North Korean book, when I started writing it, it wasn't kind of an accepted fact that they had been kidnapped to North Korea. There were people who thought they had defected to North Korea, people who thought they had gone voluntarily to work there. And one of the things I'm quite proud of with the book is that it was the book and a documentary that was made around the same time were quite key in making it so it's now established that, okay, they were kidnapped, which for Shane Heady, actress, and Shin Sang-rok, the filmmaker, was a big struggle in the second part of their lives to kind of be believed even that this had happened. And so I guess things were easier to verify with that one. There was a review the other day that, that said, I, I specialize in filmmakers who vanish. And I never quite thought about the connection between the two, I guess, thematically that way. But I guess there is one. And as a film nerd, as I said, I love being able to find stories where you can hopefully make the reader experience what it's like to be in a little pocket of film that's removed from the kind of superficial cliche we all know of a soundstage and, and bells ringing in a Hollywood studio. And, and the two books are kind of two extremes of what that's like. Yeah, and I love that, that kind of leads from the late 19th century felt 
as kind of distant as North Korea in the 70s and 80s. But in a, in a way, it kind of that rings kind of true from my experience of reading the book because you make it so vivid. We were talking just before we started recording about how vividly you evoke this world and these characters. I don't want to um, get too much into it because I want to save it for the scene that we're, where we meet them later on. But just before we get into the time travelling aspect of our conversation, you are a screenwriter as well as an author and you obviously work in film. What insight do you think your work in the film industry gave you when you were writing this book? It's a good question. I think there's a certain experience of of making films and thinking about what films mean, I think, that helped kind of separate Le Prince and the other pioneers and what they were trying to do from the kind of strictly technical you know, there's 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 a debate about these guys and about that period that's centered around who came first, who got the machine to work first, and all that sort of thing that I realized very quickly I wasn't that interested in. It's kind of an academic debate, and you can move the goalposts however it suits you. But to think about who was the first to envision a medium, which was also Le Prince. You know, a lot of people at that time thought of this as a novelty or a bit of a technological technological experiment and Le Prince was the first on the record to have notebooks and stuff where he's talking about this medium being culture changing and changing the way we feel about death and about each other and and thinking of film as something you could use for entertainment but also education and and news so I think it was helpful to come to it as a filmmaker and as someone who'd thought about film in really kind of elaborate deep sometimes highfalutin ways as opposed to coming to it as a historian or, or someone who's interested strictly in innovation or invention. And also, I think it's really key with these books to come to them with a kind of critical affection for who you're writing about. You know, if you don't like them, no one's going to like hanging out with them, reading the book either. But you ha- you have to have a bit of a, a critical, skeptical mind about it. And that was helpful too. you know, being a filmmaker and loving that word and feeling a kind of kinship with that period and those concepts. But, you know, that's the interesting thing is, is even a job of screenwriter, that kind of thing. It wasn't even a conception when they were trying to invent this. And so also being aware of how much the medium had changed, you know, trying to put yourself in the shoes of people inventing a medium without even knowing what they're really looking for or chasing and they're making the parameters up as they go. And, and you know, relevant to what you were saying and to the podcast generally, what you're trying to do with these books is time travel, really. You're trying to make it vivid enough and present enough that the reader doesn't feel like they're being told about this, but they feel like they are there. And a lot of that, at least for me, is unlearning my assumptions about a time period or unlearning my assumptions about the world that come from existing now and trying to think the way someone did in 1888. And I do a lot of work trying to get that right. Yeah, I love what you're saying about seeing people. I, I really had that experience as well when I was reading it of feeling like, come on, like you're so close. You're like, you're, ne- you're nearly there. And it kind of reminded me of, um, I don't know if you've watched the, the Beatles documentary that came out, Get Back. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And like there's there's quite a few scenes in that where you can see them writing songs and they're trying to like figure out the words, the songs. And you obviously know the songs so well. And you're like, no, no, it's it's this is this word you're looking for. I can't remember the specific example. There's one really uh, there's one really like annoying one. But you realize that at that moment in time that's captured on film, that that song just didn't exist. And it's you're watching it just about to be birthed into existence. And that is what um, this book kind of feels like as well. Thank you. And that's the beauty of that kind of, whether it's innovation or creative genius or whatever, is once it's birthed, it seems inevitable. Do you know what I mean? Once the the camera works and you film it that way, it seems inevitable. Well, of course, that's how it works. Once they've the Beatles have written a song, then it feels like, well, of course, that's how the song goes. 
And it's a weird little exercise to unpack it to, you know, before... To reverse engineer it. Yeah, before they come up with that perfect word. It could be any word that comes next. Before pioneers put celluloid in the camera and go, yeah, I'll perforate it and do this and do that. It really could be anything. And so there's an element of reverse engineering and of, I don't know, again, the time travel of culturally taking you into a different space. And with movies, that felt particularly relevant because I really think the way we think of ourselves and the way we think of time is so impacted by moving images and, and their omnipresence. And, and you know, I was always struck as a kid that even loving Casablanca, let's say, means having a relationship with a guy from halfway across the world who's been dead 40 years, which is a wild concept. It's this kind of interaction with, with cheating time that when I was writing about Le Prince, you have to make sure you're not superimposing that onto his attempts to do something or his, his, his conception of what that something could be. There's so much we take for granted about how we relate to the world. They wouldn't have been on their radar. And you're writing false history if you don't somehow shed that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that beautifully kind of evokes how exciting this year that we're about to, to visit is um, and kind of febrile. So, Paul, if you could travel through time, what year would you visit? 1888 is what I settled on. Brilliant. Okay, so before we go to the first scene, I just wanted to talk a bit more about 1888. And it and it's kind of the, this moment in, in world history, it, the world is becoming so much smaller, things are getting faster. Um, it's easier to um, travel somewhere by train, um, you can phone people, the telephone's been invented, you can take pictures of um, people on the other side of the world, and everything's getting smaller. What do you think it would have felt like? I guess we touched on it a bit in the conversation we were just having, but what do you think it would have felt like to have been alive at this time when all of this, this modernizing, this technology is, ha- is coming into being? I think it would have been a bit of a whirlwind. If I think of, you know, being my age now in 1888, so I'm in my mid-30s, then I think of, I would have been born in a world that had just come out of endless revolution in Europe and where when I was when I was a kid or when you were a kid in the 1840s, 1850s, you're in a world where photography is a whole new freaky concept. Most people barely, if ever, leave their hometown. When night falls, it's dark other than by candlelight. You travel at the speed a horse can take you. You write letters. To, to, you know, your, your world is for many, many people was limited to your very small local community. And then by the time you're an adult, you've got steamships that can take you to America in a couple of weeks. And as you said, you can record voice and take photographs and the telephone and cable and the first electrical lights are everywhere. And it was a world in a sense that I guess is relatable now, right? Because if I think of, of, let's say my grandmother's generation, when you had, I remember my grandmother talking about having one telephone in a town, you know, and you'd have to walk over and get it. And now the concept of FaceTiming is surreal that people in 1888 adults not necessarily very old adults would have experienced a world where the it must have felt like the laws of nature and the laws of physics were being bent kind of in real time and and the conception of what it meant to engage in the world was changing while you were living it which you know i find overwhelming now and probably would have felt was overwhelming then and with all of that with the urbanization and everything also came a new set of fears and a new set of opportunities at the same time. And so I find the upheaval really interesting. And I find, and, and this feeds into the, the, the dates I've chosen, I found I find the myth-making we have about those periods really interesting as well. I think a lot of accepted history about times like the late 1880s is still kind of a myth more than it is fact. And so 
you know, when I was thinking, okay, what of the millions of years I'd love to travel back to would I choose? You know, one of the, the criteria is also, I'd love to know what that actually felt like, as opposed to what I imagine it to feel like. And 1888 felt like, feels like one of those years that there might actually be a fairly large gap between what I imagine it to feel like and what it felt like. And that'd be a good motivation to get in that time machine. Definitely, definitely. So Paul, would you like to take us to our first scene in 1888? Where are we? Where have we traveled to? The first scene I thought of is kind of a sequence, let's say, but it's nighttime, 30th to the 31st of August in Whitechapel in East London. I bet most people at this point, having heard the word Whitechapel, know where we're going. But this is the night where Marianne Nichols, known as Polly, who was a woman living in very difficult circumstances in the east of London, uh, was murdered by the person who came to be known as Jack the Ripper. And, you know, Polly is considered the first of the kind of canonical Ripper victims. And this was an interesting exercise, right? Because if there's any point in Marianne Nichols's life that you could pick to be the scene or the moment that you'd want to go to. And it seems a bit on the nose to want to go to the last hours of someone's life. But it sort of is on my mind in an interesting way relating to how we feel about history, right? Because one part of it is just plain superficial curiosity. Oh, I want to know who Jack the Ripper was. I want to see it. I want to be at that moment. And another part of it is about that myth-making, you know, about that, those concepts we have about moments in history that, that aren't true, right? And so I live in England. I'm in love with Britain. It's, it's a place where I feel at home more than I have anywhere else. And in a weird way, horrible events and the destitution and inhumanity that Victorian England kind of had was part of my fascination with British culture as I came to it because it's romanticized, because it's dramatized and so you know it's it's i'm rambling now because i'm trying to unpack it as i go but it's one of those fascinations i've always had with british history that for me as a foreigner you come to british history and you're equally drawn to it by the royal family and the violent murder and mutilation of prostitutes and shakespeare and all these different things that form a culture you know this night in in, in Whitechapel. The kind of up until recently accepted history is this idea that this is a world of, of a drunken prostitutes kind of being attacked by a man sort of because of their own irresponsibility and vices and so on, which is obviously untrue and, and recently has been kind of rightfully rewritten. But again, I don't know how much in my mind my conception of Whitechapel and what it was like to be poor in London at the time is still informed by the myths. And so this night in August in 1888 feels like a flashpoint of if I could be a fly on the wall for a few hours in an environment that I would love to experience as it was rather than as it has been mythologized, then that would be one of them. Yeah, well, I was wondering when I when you sent this scene through whether you kind of wet the palette for one Victorian murder mystery and maybe you'd <laughs> want to go for another as well. Could you ever see yourself attempting to solve the Jack the Ripper mystery? No, not really. Partly because it doesn't matter. Do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't. Mm. And that's what I think makes, you know, the five Allie Rubenhold's books so special to read, at least for me, if you're interested into it. I think what matters is these women and this this world that so many people and so many women were pushed into of vulnerability rather than was it this guy or that guy do you know what I mean like that aspect of it is almost like a, a it'd be cool to have an answer to that trivia question mm. but in a way that's also relatable to today there is a feel I was when I was writing the book that 
the industrial revolution and urbanization, all this stuff was doing so much to make life better for people, but really already just a certain class of people and a certain kind mm. of people. And that there was a very deliberate kind of planning of how that would work. And it's also interesting how even that's been mythologized now, how, how even the whole concept of being able to take Jack the Ripper tours and of being able to go to the 10 bells and of there's a dissociation we have to do with certain events, yeah. which is a process of dehumanization of everybody who went into it. And I guess it's natural. I guess that's how we cope with stuff. But that's also the attraction of time travel, this idea or of writing mm. about these things is being able to reconnect with stuff that we've made kind of abstract. Mm. Mm. No, definitely. And I, I just want to kind of delve a bit deeper into into the world, this world that you've mentioned, you know, Spitalfields in 1888. Nowadays, if you walk through Spitalfields, it's kind of like completely the, the city mm. and the financial centre kind of like looms over you. But what would Whitechapel have felt like in 1888 on this evening if we were to walk down the street, if we were to come out of the pub that Marianne Nichols was in? Well, see, this is where I can only give you generally vague answers because part of my interest too with these questions, like, oh, I'd love to go somewhere where my curiosity is drawing me there rather than my expertise. But you know, Spitalfields was essentially where, where people who were kind of discarded and ignored were forced to live. You know, this is a time of workhouses and people, you know, to oversimplify a little bit, being pushed to drink and rough sleeping and precariously living and then being blamed for living in those ways in a cycle that's obviously very familiar today in how we talk about people who've been put in vulnerable situations. And Jack the Ripper aside, even taking him out of the equation, Spitalfields at the time was an extremely dangerous place because of that, because it was populated with people that the system had made very clear it didn't care about. And, you know, so so this, yeah, you come out of Liverpool Street Station today and walk around and it's it's glass and, and gleaming buildings and, and, and a kind of Disneyland version of that time for the tourists. But, you know, a very insalubrious kind of place a very exploitative kind of place and dangerous i was wondering is there something distinctly modern about jack the ripper and these murders because i was kind of thinking about london the rate that london was growing at this time and this increased sense of like anonymity and being able to not having a sense of community like you would have had in the past in smaller like smaller towns and villages and there's a sense that like anything can the most horrendous thing you can possibly imagine can happen and someone can get away with it but there is there something modern about that do you think absolutely and i think it's at the start of something really important i think one of the reasons jack the ripper kind of stuck obviously there's the whole there's the letters there's the name there's the kind of david finchiness of the serial killer but there's also you know and i was writing this book because le prince disappears i was fascinated by this idea of how people thought of crime and investigating. And one of the things that changed so quickly for that generation coming up to the 1880s is, you know, for instance, police work just a couple of dec decades earlier was kind of straightforward. Something happened, it happened in the village, you rounded up the witnesses, somebody said they saw someone, everybody knows everybody, done. But as you get railways and steamships and big cities and people moving in and out, as you say, there's an anonymity that comes with fear, you know, someone like Le Prince who gets on a train and disappears, or someone like Mr. Briggs from the famous Mr. Briggs's hat case. There was this fear and this idea that someone could assault you somewhere and be 100 kilometers away in the next 
10 minutes, you wouldn't know their name, you wouldn't know their faces. That's why rogue galleries became really popular as a way to, to kind of shame someone visually of like, this is what a criminal looks like. And I think Jack the Ripper had that kind of dimension, that kind of dimension of in a place that's so teeming and crowded and dark and, and, and mobile as a city, anybody is potentially a threat. And I think as well, and this happened fairly quickly after August 31st, that fear was also exploited to kind of prey on our worst instincts. Because one of the things you get with Jack the Ripper is very quickly that question of who could it be, it could be anyone, gets answered through the press and through, you know, malicious parties with, it's got to be the Jews. And so there's this vacuum that gets filled with prejudice because of the anonymity and fear that, you know, the Ripper case is really interesting, right? Because it's one of those, those cases where it's so evident where because the city, the urban city has kind of separated our personal contacts, people become these kind of harmful stereotypes. So mm. the serial killer becomes a kind of myth who maybe is a foreigner or a Jew or something prejudiced and hateful and horrible. And mm. these women who are made vulnerable by the system become drunken, loutish prostitutes who probably kind of deserved it. And there's something about the city where because we don't know each other closely and personally that allows for narrative, superficial kind of narrative that feeds on those fears and feeds on that unknown. That's super modern. That's, you know, pick mm. up a tabloid today and it's working essentially on the same kind of mechanisms. Um, yeah. And that's really interesting. And that's another one of those, you know, traveling to some point in Marianne Nichols' life to kind of, and again, I don't know the, 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 the parameters of how the time travel works. So I'm assuming you're just observing, but there's something feels a bit radical to being able to just see and re-experience and reclaim a person as a human being aside from all of that if you were able to get yeah. in a machine and go absolutely yeah absolutely i think um it's time for us to move on to our second scene which is thankfully a little bit more upbeat than um the <laughs> than the really bleak world <laughs> victorian Whitechapel, and a bit safer maybe would you like to tell us where we are going for our second scene? This one's very selfish and probably has no interest to anybody else. But this is Bolton, September 8th at the Pikes Lane football ground. And this was the first day of official football league matches in England. And there, re and there were several matches happening at the same time. And the reason I'd love to have been in Bolton is because at Pikes Lane, where Bolton Wanderers played Derby County, was where a man called Kenny Davenport scored the first goal in English football league history. And as a massive football fan, as someone who partly fell in love with Britain because of football, and, and that's not just because of the sport, that's because of, this is sort of obvious, I guess, to, to sports fans, but not so much to other people. There's a pyramid of football in Britain that historically kind of connects and roots it from the very top of the professional leagues trickling down to your local football club to where the passion and the presence and the interest in games that are in the third, fourth, fifth division, kind of really reflects how important clubs and the sport are as kind of a community glue. And so that's always been really attractive and interesting to me about, about British football culture. You know, I, I didn't come to games or anything because I was abroad. So the whole hooliganism thing and everything just passed me completely by. But this idea of it as a connective tissue was really compelling to me my whole life. And now, because it's so commercialized and drifting away from that you know i'm an arsenal fan with a season ticket now and going to the stadium is like going to terminal five at heathrow airport it's got 
that kind of connection and players are millionaires and the season tickets are expensive. Um, and I am one of those people who romanticizes, you know, the old days when, when guys cleaned their own boots and had part-time jobs at the same time and, and, you know, played for the local clubs, Kenny Davenport, who scored that goal for Bolton Wanderers was from Dean and Bolton just down the road from the ground. And in a very selfish way, thinking 1888, what would I like to do back then? I'd go to a football match. Just be in that crowd of 5,000 <laughs> outside Manchester, yeah, just, absolutely. just taking in a match and, and getting to do that. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a wonderful moment. Such a good one to pick. Could we talk a bit about what this match would have looked like? I mean, you've described what it's like to go to an Arsenal match yeah. today, but what would the football ground then have been like? Is it anything? Does it resemble in any way modern football ground? I mean, you know, Pikes Lane had the stands and everything. The thing that's great about this ground in specific is even then it was notorious for being an absolute disaster. The pitch was terrible. The facilities were terrible. I actually think Wanderers moved away from there a couple of years later because it was just unpleasant for everyone. But, you know, I think that first match had 5,000 people, which if you compare it to the 60,000 you get in an Arsenal game now, feels like your kind of local game. And, and from the reports, it's a sunny day. It's a beautiful day. Football at the time much slower than it would have been now. A lot of goal math scrambles and, and uh, uh, the, lo- the guy for the local paper not being able to tell who scored a goal because it's just a mess of bodies and then a ball pops out like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Um, but there was so much passion for the sport already, right? The Football League was created because these clubs existed and, and the sport was so popular that professionalism wasn't sort of agreed or accepted to until 1885. But clubs were paying players kind of under the table and bonuses and anything they could do to get the popular local players because people wanted to go to the football and cared passionately about the football. And so this league was created as a way to kind of make professionalism systematic and organized and, and, you know, again, this isn't very romantic, but kind of organize revenue streams and make them reliable. And so it's another one of those those situations in 1888 that's fascinating to me as well is this is a period where capitalism is kind of really taking hold and the kind of local artisanal, I suppose, way of doing things is falling to the wayside. And this is one thing that's in the book about Le Prince and 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 it might come up later is Le Prince was one of those of a last generation of tinkerers and whatever for who invention was just something you did in the back shed. You had an idea, mm. you went over there, you messed around with it. And he was inventing at a time where the world was actually changing into what I call the Thomas Edison model, which is, no, actually an inventor is a guy with an R&D department and massive resources and JP Morgan money and investment because we've realized that innovation is something we can monetize. And the Football League is a similar thing. You know, this is a sport that's moving away from you play locally with your friends against the local teams to this is something we can monetize. Yeah. And so that's a fascinating thing to be around too. I don't know, you know, it's as a football fan now, it's so kind of ingrained that you talk about transfer fees and contract lengths and player values and a, a little bit like, like innovation and invention. We've accepted that capital sets the rules of how we talk about this. And it would be mm-hmm. fascinating to be in the crowd of football fans who either wouldn't have any conception of that or who were kind of working it out there and, and, and overhearing conversations of what does this mean today? Then instead of just playing against Derby because they're down the road and we agree to date, we're playing against them because we're home and away in a league with specific gate receipts and the players are being paid X amount. It'd be great to you know go to the pub afterwards and hear 
whether that's changing people's conception of of this national pastime yeah yeah absolutely I love that idea about going to the pub I, I feel like for some reason in my imagination like Victorian men could hold their drink better than modern men so you might have to like <laughs> try you might have to try and keep up with their drinking I don't know that's maybe I've, I don't know where I've no it's before. a fair one I don't know how it'd fly if I rocked up going lads I've got Crohn's disease I can do one and a half and then I'm out um <laughs> But, I don't know if they'd accept that. Yeah. But just on on Kenny Davenport, how would the um, invention of like professional football? How would that have changed his life? He was obviously playing football before, and yeah. he played football after. So what changed for him? Well, I guess so. It's at least for me, it's been quite hard to find details about Kenny Davenport. You know, stocky fella, handsome mustache, that kind of thing. And he had a relatively short career. I think what it would have meant is professionalism for starters meant an income. And probably not enough of an income to be your sole income for most players, but an income nonetheless and a reliable income. Because you knew that, you know, you were playing these 12 teams home and away. It wasn't a chaos of fixtures. Will we have some next month? Will we not? And I think that would have been the main driver. I don't think there was necessarily any kind of immediate prestige to being in a league as opposed to to kind of playing ad hoc against other teams. And Kenny Davenport, you know, had a couple caps for England. He's a very well-known player very well-respected player. But it also, and this is, you know, he'd already been playing for Bolton Wanderers before the league was created, but it was, I think it kind of mattered, you know, to be at the professional team for your local hometown as a professional collecting a pay packet every week. Mm, mm. And, you know, again, I don't know if any of these are stretches because I was really going through my dates. I was really like, this is a selfish one. But if I'm traveling somewhere I'm going to the first football match no Um, and I think I think it is a good one because there's something about the quality or nature of modernity is something that ties these three scenes in together and as you've spoken about with this one it is about capital and it is about things becoming monetized which feels like you said very 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 natural to us now but perhaps didn't feel as natural to people then. And there is something kind of distinctly modern about that as well. Absolutely. And I think then there was generally, again, I'm simplifying, but it was generally a confidence that capital was pretty good. Industry was pretty good. Um, You know, you could have been working in an iron forge your whole life. Your family could have for generations. But if you come up with something new that you can patent, then you can make money from it. The next thing you know, you can be like some of these guys. In the north, he went from working on the, the forge floor to having a, a mansion and running for mayor and funding the local college. And, of course, in the way capitalism works, those are the very rare unicorns, but the system makes you believe that could be you mm. any minute. And I think that idea was kind of developing at this time. And I think for me also in terms of time travel, and this is less about capital, it's really easy, I think, looking back at these things in history to kind of take them in isolation, right? But that night Marianne Nichols is murdered is re- it's pretty much a week before this. And so it's in the papers. And if you're going to the football ground, or if you're going to the pub afterwards, you're probably talking about it. You've read about it that morning. And... That was something that I thought was cool when these dates kind of lined up, these three dates, is they're really pretty close. They all exist. I know it's stupid because it's the same year, but they all exist in the same universe. They all exist in the same experience. Even though mm-hmm. taking in isolation, they're so separate. Yeah. And I found that difficult, you know, to write about, uh, uh, to kind of wrap my heads around writing this book of history. It's like, you know, if you think of how would I write about 2021 or 2020, then because mm. well, we've lived through it, 
it makes sense that we go, it's the pandemic and it's Trump and it's this and it's that. And we've experienced it as all connected. So it's a given that it's all connected. But it's actually really easy if you write about something that happened 150 years ago to go, okay, I'm writing about Louis Le Prince. And so I'll just write about all the stuff that's directly relevant to him. And to kind of forget that everything else impacts the way this experience feels uh, um, for this person. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, the thing I like about these dates as well is they they drip and leak into each other, which I think would be an interesting way to experience mm. time travel. Definitely. And and there is, like you say, there's something about the way that we study history so that you might think, well, I'm, I study the Jack the Ripper murders and that's my, you know, that's my niche. Or I'm studying like the invention of motion picture and that's my niche. And you forget that they're all happening at the same time, like you said. And it's kind of, it's fascinating to think that perhaps Louis Le Prince knew about the Jack the Ripper murders, you know, and was he was obviously living in Leeds at the time that he might have, like, it might, word have, might have, you know, travelled up from London about these things it that were happening. But we feel it's almost like they're two characters in two separate novels. You can't it, think about them being Especially if they're in together, different cities, you know? yeah, because we assume, I don't know, it, it's a different world. Whereas the Jack the Ripper murders, you know, the Yorkshire Post's, um, the Leeds papers, it was all over them. It was a huge thing. And 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 Le Prince mm. and his family, there's pretty strong evidence. They read the papers every day. They would have known about it. They would have talked about it. And in that lens as well, a football match becomes really interesting to me because no matter what's going on in the world that's depressing and terrifying and I'm scared about climate change, will my kid be okay? You then walk through the doors of a football ground and the whole world kind of pauses and this weird, absurd thing of 22 grown men kicking a ball around becomes everything. Mm. And mm. it'd be really cool to experience that familiar feeling in a setting and a culture as, as remote as 1888. Um, and, mm. and, you know, again, the selfish impulse of this, I'm very in love with, with British culture, which is a very bittersweet thing. The last few years, if you're foreign and Brexit happens and all this stuff and you suddenly start going, oh, I'm, I'm mm. not necessarily welcome in this long term bed and breakfast I've been in for ages. But it was I felt a bit guilty picking three dates, spoiler alert, that are all in England. But part of the attraction of time travel is unpacking some of your own stuff. Um, and there's a coherence to this little time travel trip that feels really like, again, this is how nerdy I am. I took it very seriously that if you could actually climb in a time machine and go somewhere, that if I was taking this trip, it would feel very psychologically useful. Hello, it's Peter here. Nothing quite brings the past to life like travelling to sea where a momentous event took place, where an art movement sprang to life, where a battle raged, or where the first notes of a symphony sounded. If you're culturally curious and looking for a holiday with a difference, then take a look at Ace Cultural Tours, who've sponsored this episode of Travels Through Time. They've been taking tour groups globetrotting for over 60 years and their tours cover a range of interests and destinations with plenty on offer in the UK as well as further afield. All ACE tour groups are hosted by subject experts who are often able to provide exclusive access visits to private art collections, houses and gardens. Whether you want to feel the wind in your hair on the Roman frontier at Hadrian's Wall 
following the footsteps of Picasso and Matisse around the Côte d'Azur, or contemplate hundreds of years of worship at Japan's oldest surviving temple, Ace Ashore, to have something for you. Find out more via their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk or speak to their friendly team on 01223 841 055 yeah well i'm glad you're taking it seriously it's a very it's a very serious podcast um you know sometimes i've interviewed authors who have um written books about things terrible terrible awful Mm. things that have happened in history and they'll say well, I, I wouldn't really want to visit this year <laughs> if I if I could really travel back in time, but I, I'm going to go to this one anyway because I'm really desperate to find out, you know, what happened here. But um, Paul, without further ado, I think we should go to your third and final scene and meet the man himself who our listeners have probably been desperate to find out more about. So where are we for our third and final scene? We are in Roundhay, right outside Leeds in Yorkshire on October 14th, 1888. So five weeks on from that first football match, one county over. And on October 14th, 1888, Louis Le Prince, who's a French member, has been living and working in Leeds. After going to church on that Sunday morning and after having lunch with his in-laws and his son, gathers the family on the front lawn of, of the family home. And he brings out this huge mahogany box with a lens on a giant bipod that he's been obsessing about for years that he calls a taker of images, but that we would call a camera. And Le Prince asks his family to just stand in a circle and walk around. And then he cranks the hand crank on that machine and his ribbons of film start moving in the machine. And he takes the first motion picture ever made, as far as we know, the oldest surviving motion picture, which is a big scene in the book, obviously, and which as someone who is obsessed with film is obviously a moment where if you could stand by the camera the first time a film was ever made, would be an absolutely brilliant experience. And one thing I like about this one is we experience that kind of time travel and history through objects quite a lot. I think that's what's cool about museums and all that stuff is artifacts, objects, one of the concrete ways we have of relating to these times. There's a guy here in France at the Cinematheque who's got a collection of kind of early cameras. And there's a collection at the Media Museum in Bradford of these old machines. And there's something about Touching those drums and those reels and those cameras and those cranks, that's really, really vivid. And you could, as people have, write histories of the world in objects. And I get a little kick out of the fact that going back to that myth-making we have about history, we all think of film as really an industrial medium, right? It's the only, as someone was telling me yesterday, which I thought was brilliant, it's the only creative medium we have whose start can be pinpointed to an exact date. We don't know when people started painting or writing or tapping stuff to make music, but we know exactly when people started making movies. But we think of it as an industrialized medium. We think of it as it's big cameras and it takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of expertise. But actually the first one ever made is a home movie. It's a guy going, do silly walks around the garden. It's something that looks like what I have in my phone right now. Yeah. Which is a complete opposite of the Hollywood kind of myth. And so I would love to have been there for all those reasons to have, you know, say hello to Mr. Le Prince, stand by the camera in the first movie is taken, probably have a very nice conversation about what this person imagines the film could be, and to experience this is where it started, as opposed to this is where we've written it to have started. Mm. I, I just got goosebumps when you were describing it, because it is such an extraordinary scene, and 
how amazing would it be to be stood there? And then um, uh, the film itself, which I will, um, it's on obviously on YouTube yeah. and I will make sure that it's on the um, website for the episode as well. So people can watch it and it's kind of tantalizingly, it's only like three or four seconds long yeah. and I just was watching it on repeat. There's something so, like you say, it's a home movie. There's something so human about it. It's really, really special actually. But I also wanted to spend some time talking about Louis himself because he's such an enigmatic figure mm. and I can see why you'd want to have a conversation with him because he comes across as a very thoughtful, interesting, kind person yeah. as well. Could you tell listeners a bit about Louis Le Prince? Le Prince is a really fascinating to me Victorian character. He was born in France in Metz, which is kind of right on the border with Germany in the 1840s. And his father was an army officer. And so he grew up in a kind of middle class, petit bourgeois kind of existence. And you get the sense early in his life that he kind of had so much choice of what he could do that he didn't have any idea what he would do in the way middle-class, upper-middle-class people can have where, you know, he went to study chemistry at one university and optics at another, but he liked taking pictures and painting. And there are pictures of him in the sixties in France where he looks very much kind of like a dandy who probably spends most of his days in a bistro rather than working. And then while he's in Paris, he meets, a woman from Yorkshire called Lizzie Whitley, Elizabeth Whitley, falls in love, goes back to Leeds in Yorkshire with her. And Lizzie's family have been in the iron business for generations. And her father is one of those industrial revolution figures I was talking about who started his career in the family business, living in the tenements and working 18 hour days for not very much money. And now lives in a mansion in Roundhay and owns a gigantic business and employs people and has patented a couple of boiler valves and, and small things kind of in, in the history of inve- innovation and invention, but that have made him comfortable. And the fascinating thing about Le Prince is from this kind of dandyish bourgeois young man, he comes to Leeds and kind of comes alive, rolling his sleeves up and working and being on the factory floor and, and, and doing engineering drawings and, you know, suddenly having a bit of a purpose for all this stuff that was kind of vague beforehand. And so he then goes on and kind of lives a bunch of different lives that you could go into, but, you know, he, he becomes a war veteran and he works in entertainment and he runs a school and he teaches deaf children and he comes up with some innovative photography stuff. And he was someone who seemed very intelligent and very thoughtful and very present, but was also looking for a way to have an impact on the world. And that became this idea he had by accident one day of really, what if you could make pictures move? And the thing that's cool, I guess, relevant to this is you can tell from his notebooks and his letters and his stuff that he had a sense that if he could do that, you would be harnessing some kind of time travel and some kind of spatial travel. You'd be enabling people to relive moments that were supposed to have gone years ago. You'd be able to enable people to go somewhere they wouldn't have had the time to go otherwise. And you know, that's one of my loves for film. Like it is to me more than any other medium, a time travel kind of device. And so, you know, a bit meta, but it'd be cool to go to the October 15th and and see that time travel machine being put to work. Definitely. I think it's important as well. It's such an important part of the story that I wanted to talk to you about is that Louis Le Prince isn't the only man at this time who has had this idea that maybe it would be fun or profitable to make pictures move. And that was something I found really fascinating about the book you talk about 
the this theory of invention of like why it's very often the case that very similar things are invented at very similar times but in completely unrelated parts of the world with nobody necessarily having any idea that someone else is doing it and that was the case that was the case with motion pictures that's one of the reasons this moment is like a really exciting one to visit because we feel like we're at the finishing line of a great race that's been taking place absolutely Um, could you talk yeah could you talk yeah absolutely there's the industrial revolution created this kind of world that we're still in today i think but where coming up with something new wasn't just coming up with something new but it by definition paved the way to the next something new you know to kind of uh, simplify it but like louis daguerre comes up with who's a frenchman in the 30s comes up along with with a collaborator for a method of photography that allows you to take portraits which is just because the exposure can be quicker than several minutes and the second that happens that opens up the door to well what if we could take it even further and take pictures that happen instantaneously and so then edward mybridge takes the first instantaneous pictures and that immediately leads the way to oh if we can take a picture in a second why can we take a picture every second and that leads the way to well if we want to take pictures quickly then we can't take them on glass plates anymore what if we could find a flexible kind of solid way and that leads the way to celluloid which then and so it made it ideas like motion pictures feel kind of inevitable because everything in this conception of progress that people had everything everything was an end but also a means to an end at the same time and so with motion pictures, completely, really unrelated, Le Prince comes to it just because he's messing around with photographs in his shed and, and he had these projects where he fired photographs on glass plates in a kind of coronation tea set kind of way that, that people may be able to visualize. And he's holding a couple of pictures in his hand and they slip and they superimpose as he grabs them and it looks like the person in the picture is moving. And his family have been looking at magic lantern slides and being entertained by it. And his brain just goes, oh, if I can make these pictures move, then I'd have something even better than the magic lantern. We can entertain people with actual stuff moving. At the same time, there are scientists like Mybridge and like a Frenchman called Jules Marais who come in motion pictures in a completely different way that actually, let's say in Marais' case, he's studying the way animals move. So if I could actually take a battery of pictures and then make them move again and stop again and analyze the motion, then I can really do something for our knowledge of the natural world. And then you have people like the Lumiere brothers and Edison who come to it as, oh, this is a toy we can use. And then you have people coming to it as, oh, wow, my bridge is doing really well with, or Renault are doing very well with animated pictures. What if we could animate actual photographs? And these people are all at best dimly aware of one another and of what's happening. And so close together that Le Prince films this Ranhe garden scene is what it's called on October 14th. And we can date it pretty specifically because there's a letter from one of the people in the film describing the events and because Le Prince's mother-in-law died shortly thereafter. But almost certainly Marais made his first motion picture the next day on October 15th. And so, if you're parsing these things, you're talking a matter of less than 24 hours. And not because they were spying on each other or stealing from each other, even interested in one another, but just because that stuff was in the air, which is just really cool. And I think another thing Capital has done is because genius is marketable. It's made us think about innovation as something that just one colossus does. That's what Thomas Edison is, right? He's a genius. He's a brand. So is Steve Jobs. So is Tony Stark, they're all myths. 
but actually the history of innovation being about stuff that's in the ether and that different people are trying to catch is so much more fascinating to me. Mm, definitely. And it's just tantalizing, like the idea of them being that close to one another. And um, yeah, I, I love that. I wanted to talk a bit about, um, I obviously want people to read the book, so I don't want to kind of give everything away, but I felt like an important part of understanding the significance of this moment on the lawn is understanding what Louis had sacrificed to be yeah. there. Um, he had been working at this invention for years at this point and was very far away from his family. Could you tell listeners a bit about that? Yeah, of course. So Le Prince has the idea for motion pictures, I think in about 80, 1880, 1881. And then it's, he and his family, young kids, move away from Leeds to New York to kind of start a new life unrelated to this. And while he's in New York, he starts working on motion pictures in earnest. And so he works on motion pictures for four five years, virtually full-time, halfway through that period decides it'd be best if I went back to Leeds to work on this. The father-in-law is still there. He still has the factory. He has the contacts. He has the knowledge. And also it's far away from New York where I've now realized industrial theft is a thing. Mm. And I'm starting to feel a bit paranoid. But what this meant for the prince was leaving his wife and four kids alone in New York. And, and, and he was convinced it would take a few weeks, a couple of months, and I'll be back. And that stretched into a year and then two years and then three years. And so he was so obsessed with this idea that he was away from his family for years, working on nothing else, pouring his inheritance, any money available into it. Lizzie, his wife, you know, virtually bankrolling him with every paycheck she could scrounge around while raising four kids. They had a, a, a nanny slash housekeeper, Phoebe Eatson, that they took to New York with them, who, you know, then stayed on unpaid, just helping out because they, they couldn't afford to keep on paying her. But also they all felt like they were in this together. Le Prince's oldest son worked with him and he's in that first film. And he was so obsessed about the potential of this idea and had successfully kind of sold his family on how huge this would be, mm -hmm. that they put all of their resources into it for years and years and years. And Le Prince manages to make these films and then before he can make the films public and actually start getting some of that money back and, and kind of crossing the official finish line disappears and they're left with nothing and this is another thing that's really interesting in terms of of capital and how we think about history is i really do think beyond the disappearance one of the reasons people don't know about louis the prince is he never sold a ticket to a film screening mm. and we've kind of accepted now that the history of invention has landmarks that are that are determined by money. You know, the, the, what I grew up with learning about the Lumiere brothers was that cinema was born on December 28th, 1895. And that's not because that's when they made a film. It's because that's when they had their first paying screening mm. where people bought tickets to come and see a film. And Thomas Edison, people think of 1891 as the year he invented film, quote unquote, because that's when they opened kinetoscope parlors and people bought tickets. And we sort of have this built-in assumption that, that that's the real marker of something having been successfully invented. You know, Le Prince had patents and made the films and the films exist. And a patent is meant to be legal proof that you came first, but we still don't buy it. We think someone buying a ticket and not asking for a refund is the marker, which is again, capitalism at play. And there's a Le Prince researcher called Irfan Shah who kind of has this great line about the way we think about this, which is this idea of, you know, if you if someone makes a film and no one pays to see it, 
does that film still exist? Mm. <laughs> and so traveling to that date is also reclaiming, regardless of his disappearance, regardless of whether he was able to sell a ticket, the birth of film is when a guy made a film, mm. not when they monetized it. Yeah. Yeah, well, like I said, it's such a wonderful scene and I'm glad that we're visiting it. I think one last question I had before we head back to the present you mentioned that you would like to have a conversation with Louis Le Prince. What mm. question would you ask him if you could? I would ask him, I don't know, I'd ask him what his ambitions were for that medium. I'd ask him what film he would make, you know, the second he could. Because Le Prince also, he, he wrote and spoke about wanting to paint his films to make them colour and, and have them in 3D and, and use a phonograph to play sound with them. So I guess I'd ask him about his conception of the medium and just listen to what that was like without kind of coloring it with my own love for it. Um, yeah. And then I tell him to be careful about getting on a train in September 1890. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I really strongly encourage um, listeners to read the book, to find out more about that aspect of the mystery and also just to find out more about the story and about Louis Le Prince's life, because it was such a delight to read. Very sadly, we have to head back to the present, um, but you're allowed to bring back with you a memento from 1888. So what would you like to bring? I'd be cheap. I'd take a little bit of the film. I know that's terrible, but I'd find a moment to just clip a frame and bring it back. Obviously. I felt like that's the that's the best one to go for, because some of the film is missing, isn't it? That's Yeah, so uh, it's a bit complicated, but the, the, they numbered the contact sheets in a way that suggests it's much longer than a couple of seconds that survive. Mm. but all we have is a couple of seconds that are kind of tantalizing yeah and so yeah i'm sure they wouldn't miss just one more frame if I <laughs> that's a great memento well paul thank you so much for joining us today on travels through time it's been such a delight thanks so much for having me that was a lovely trip that was me artemis Irvin, speaking to paul fisher about the year 1888 the man who invented motion pictures is published by faber and is available to buy now you can find out more about this episode and any of our others by heading over to our website, tttpodcast.com. But for now, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.